Amen. Are you all excited to see us do a message? Amen. Amen. I can say that this was the easiest message I've ever put together in my entire life. And I'll be struck dead for lying as we speak. So before we get kicked off with the message, and I still want you guys back there to record. Are you recording game? Amen. Good. Good. So I'd like to play a video that Pastor Eric sent from Jerusalem, and it's Eric Treister, Mark Morrison, and himself sharing an encouraging word that will tie in to our message this morning. We're sitting here in the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem. One life, one family, one nation at a time. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We want to encourage you from this city that has endured so much not to torture yourself with a faithless fear. Even if you sat in the valley of the shadow of death, you should fear no evil. Look, while we're in Jerusalem, we want to read to you Psalm 48. Great is the city of the Lord, most worthy of praise. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, it is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the utmost of the sacred mountain is Mount Zion, the city of a great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. The longer you read that psalm, the more beautiful it is. It tells you to walk through this city, to consider the ramparts, to consider the fortresses that are here, and that our God has put enemies to flight in this city. There may be no more attacked place on the planet, and yet God has upheld his people. There's a message for the, for you in that, LCM. We love you, and before we leave this great city, we wanted to bring you a message of hope. Y'all enjoy Pastor Matthew and Pastoress Cassidy this morning as they share with you on this very subject. In the name of Jesus from Jerusalem, we beckon you peace and goodwill. Amen. That's a good word, isn't it right? Well, today's date is November 11, 2018, and the title of today's message that goes with that video is Strengthened in the Face of Fear. Strengthened in the Face of Fear. I couldn't be more happy, more elated, more excited to be joined by my wife today in delivering this message to you guys. Over the course of 20 years of marriage, we have had the wonderful opportunity to face a variety, if not plethora, of fears. Plethora, exactly. More recently, the Lord has forced us as a couple to confront the way that we respond to fear, both in ourselves and in each other. Come on, can I get an amen from married couples Yes, fear is a reality in everyone's life. But as you progress forward in doing God's will, particularly 
intimate covenants, the weaknesses that fear is or the fears are in your life only grow in size and number as you increase in marriage. We want to share with you, our family, what we've learned from these trials and what we believe the Lord is speaking to this body as well as us about facing your fears. So let's recap a little bit. So how does this message align with what the Lord has been speaking to our body in the previous messages? We've heard a fantastic spirit-led combination of messages about rebuilding the wall. Everybody say rebuilding the wall. Examining our foundations. Say examining our foundations. Joining with those around us. Building with dressed stones. Come on, say it like you're alive. Last one. Completing the work. There we go. Now you're coming alive, baby. So let's pick up at a central point that all these messages have built from and go to Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 6. Come on, talk to me. <laughs> well, how, just say there when you're there, yes. And, uh, yeah, well, anyway. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. Say half its height. It's an important element. For the people worked with all their heart. Let's focus on this term, half its height. When you look at your work and realize there is still so much left to be done, but you, you feel like you haven't done, you don't have the strain to complete the rest of it. Who's ever been there before? Absolutely. If you're not there, you will be soon. It has taken everything I have so far. It's what you say to yourself. And I'm only halfway there. Are you kidding me? So, I have the opportunity to be the youngest within our leadership team. Yes. And that means that I am at the ripe old age of 42 years old, 42 and a half. And we call 40 years old, uh, over the hill, right? It's over the halfway point. So looking back at my life and now looking forward, I know I'm making everybody over that age feel even older. Yes. All you ladies that are above 40, you don't look a day over 35. Amen. Yes, that's a great amen. <laughs> but you know what it's like? Uh, you get to that point at 40 where you finally have obtained some level of wisdom to go along with the strength to do the work, and your strength is now rapidly fading. So that whole thing of how I imagine myself completing the work and how I actually complete the work, two totally different things. At the point in my life where I'm now the most responsible and the most productive and effective years, I'm now growing to the point where I am weaker than I've ever been before in a physical and even emotional state. You know that after the age of 30, testosterone begins to decrease by half every single year. Well... Yes. So what does that require? It requires a greater dependency on the power and presence of God to complete the rest of the work. So we were thinking about this. Good morning, y'all. How are you? 
<laughs> we were thinking about this and, you know, Matt said, this is where we are in life. You know, we're halfway, we're at the halfway mark. I'm like, oh my God, that sounds so difficult. <laughs> but amen, we, we've gotten, we still have half of our lives to, to go, right? So that's, that's, a, that's the way we have to look at it. But I started thinking about other people in our church and Stephen Joyce came to mind where they have put in years of waiting, years of travailing in the Lord, um, in prayer, waiting for their promise. And now she's pregnant and she's almost there. I mean, I got word today that some things are starting to happen. So we might be looking at a baby this week. Yes. Right. Amen. By this week. (laughs) Okay. But so she's travailed and she's done it and her strength is about to give out. Right. Joyce, you got to put your feet up and rest. But she's not even halfway there yet. She's just about to begin this parenting thing. You know, I look and we've got, um, our, our girls are almost all in their teenage years. And it, it frightens me. We all always had a baby on my hip. And all of a sudden now I'm the parent of teenagers. And pretty soon I'm going to be the parent of wives and mothers. And looking at that and going, how do I finish the work God has given me? But I feel like I've done so much and I'm weary and I've put forth so much effort. Lord, haven't I built in unity? Haven't I examined my foundation? Haven't I got my stone from the quarry and measured it and got it cut according to your standard? Haven't I done these things? And he says, yeah, but your wall is only halfway built. So where does that leave us? It leaves us in a place of realizing that it takes God's power to finish the rest. So here soon... Uh, the Thomases will have a child in their arms. We will celebrate the victories of God. Then I'm sure that labor will be more intensive for Steve than it is Joyce. (laughs) And, and let me offer to you as a, 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 uh, a gift for your new child, a revelation that after this intense amount of labor, you have a minimum of 18 years of parenting this child before you ever get back to the position you are right now in your life. 18 years. So not even halfway. Well, that, that reminds me of uh, Gabe, Gabe, and Brenton. Double Gabe, Brenton. I don't, what do you guys call yourself now? Mopohos, yes. Or yeah, lion killers. Let's just say that. So... These young 18-year-old or near 18-year-old lion killers, they're learning the trade of construction. And a lot of you guys have that experience in this church. And you know that when you're in that process of being trained to know how to do construction, there is a pivotal shift in, in a project or just an understanding where, oh my God, I'm only halfway through this project. I'm only halfway in learning how to do construction. And I am either out of money I'm out of material or I'm out of time (laughs) or it's all three together. And so when when I'm watching these young men develop, it is right that they get to the point where they are exhausted and they're not even halfway done because that travailing is going to make them cry out to God. And that crying out to God will result in God revealing his promises and thereby his purposes to these young men. If you do it for them, he will surely do it for you. So there's a missing element to completing the wall or completing the work. And Nehemiah addresses this. 
The people are discouraged and out of strength, facing threats and weariness. Let's stay in chapter 4 of Nehemiah, but go to verse 14. In this, Nehemiah says, After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid. Let me read that again. His first words to the people were, don't be afraid of them. Come on, we get to a certain point in reaching that halfway mark of whatever God has given us. And we have to get that rallying word from God, that reminder that fear is the majority of the obstacle in completing the work. He says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Nehemiah addresses the central issue of fear. And more importantly, he says, don't be afraid of them. Instead, fear the Lord. Don't be afraid of the rest of the work, but instead, Yahweh, fear the Lord. When progress is being made, we find confidence, right? We call it seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. But don't we all know from experience, and we will soon know if you don't, that the greatest opposition to completing the rest of that work is fear. You know, one of the challenges that I have After being in ministry, full-time, no work for five years, but full-time work and full-time ministry for 15 years. It's not when will I get to the point of building the wall. It's do I still have what it takes to complete it? Do I still have what it takes to complete it? Come on, nothing tests this more than having teenagers. (laughs) We're halfway there. Let's say nine or ten years old. Isn't that right, Emmy? And it's taken everything you got to build up to the point that where they're at. And then the remaining years only become more complicated and more difficult. But when it is achieved, it is glorious and produces the fruit that we desire. I want to share about some more of our, our personal experiences and how this message was developed. Because fear has been a consistent obstacle in our lives. So I came from a family of fear. This was, I was raised up in fear. It was like, it was the environment that I was reared in. Um, one, one half of my family was so dominated by it. I, some of y'all have heard me tell this story, but my grandmother, who I love dearly and was precious in the Lord and her prayers are probably why I'm saved today, but she was so bound up with fear that her world got smaller and smaller and smaller. She went from, you know, being able to walk the streets of New Orleans to go to work, not walk the street, walk the streets of New Orleans to go to work at a telephone company. She's walking to work, she was not walking, walking. To work. Yes. Yes. Oh, Lord Jesus. God rest her soul. Okay. We were fearful we we're going to say the wrong thing yeah, this y'all, morning. I'm nervous. Hey, we got that out of the way. Let's okay. keep going. Yeah. All right. So she, she would leave her house and she would walk to work. And then as the years progressed and fear dominated her more and more, she got to where she wouldn't go outside of her yard. And then it got so bad that she wouldn't go outside of her house and she still wanted to get exercise. So she would walk up and down her shotgun house in the hallway. And that's how she would get her exercise just back and forth for 30 minutes. And I just thought, Oh my gosh, you won't even open the windows. You're so dominated by fear. I'm never going to be like that. 
And then I got married and I realized I'm, I'm on that path. That is who I'm going to become if we don't get control of this. For me, it's a little bit different. Uh, it was a subtle enemy. And what I mean by that is uh, the environment and more so what was developed in me as a result of my own issues was I would ignore the presence of fear. I would just pretend it doesn't even exist. I wouldn't even acknowledge it. There is a right time for that if it's founded upon the promises and the word of God that's substantiating you. But that would that provided for me a justification just to ignore everything that is fearful. To the point where I didn't have a, the alertness. I didn't have the awareness that was needed to, in order to rightly guard and protect the things that God had entrusted to me. So when we got married, and he's recognizing the fear in me, and I'm recognizing the fear in him, but he won't acknowledge it, we, we ended up fighting against each other in fear. Why are you this way? Why are you this way? Well, you just fear everything. Well, you don't fear anything, you know, and we fought. No, I don't. <laughs> which, which would be admirable, except, we, you know, it led to bad responses in us. And so we spent years fighting each other. And what the Lord has done, especially recently, is he's put us in situations where we can't afford to fight yeah. each other anymore. We can't do this. We can't waste any more time. We can't waste any more energy fighting against each other. We have to lock arms and help each other. Come on, we preaching to y'all this morning? Because yes. I promise you, at some point we sat down as a couple with everyone in this room. And I am promising you, we are talking about you. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> Fear has also been an ever-increasing obstacle. As we have increased in the kingdom, opposition through fear has increased. Well, there's more things to be fearful of. When you're single, because we are speaking to single people as well, not just married. When you're single, there are things to fear. Fear that you might be alone for the rest of your life. Fear that you might not reach that destiny and call which God's given you. A variety of fears. But once you begin to conquer those as a single person, and then more begins to be added to you, a family, a, uh, the, the progress of fulfilling a call, maybe even standing in that fullness of capacity that God designed you to be. Now there's more at risk. There's more to lose. When there's more to lose, then fear can have a greater amount of grip and trying to seize your confidence and rob you from it. It is imperative that we get this right. Yeah. We cannot let fear rob us of the faith that's required for us to receive the promises that God has made to us. When we brought up some examples earlier. You know, Steve and Joyce, if they had stopped at some point and just gave up and let fear uh, remove from them the, the pursuit of having an established family. They would not be in the position they are right now about to experience holding their child in their own arms. If our young men give up at some point and say that construction or learning how to, to do this way of life is just too hard, I'm not, I'm not fit for this task. You know what? I look up to Judah. I look up to all these other men in the church. I'm not like them, so I'm just going to quit. That is fear robbing you of the promises that God has in store. It's imperative that we get this right. Amen. 
So what the Lord has been teaching us is how to strengthen each other in the face of fear. Because the only way we can do this correctly is to do it through right shalom. The only way we can do this correctly is to do it through right shalom. And here's exactly what I mean. Is that throughout our marriage, there have been times when I have faced internal fears. And what my thought was is that I would go, I would spend time in prayer alone. I would read the word alone. I would seek to be strengthened by the Lord alone. And hoping and desiring to get something from him so that I could bring that strength to my wife. That is a good principle, but that can't be the only method in which you strengthen your fears. Because it develops a self-sufficiency. Thank you for talking to me, Tamika. I love you when you're in a service. Because it develops such a toxic self-sufficiency that you don't allow anybody else to step in and give you the very help that God has been intending to give you the whole time. God gave me an easy easer. That's right. So that I could receive help from the Lord from my wife. I could receive help from the Lord from the body of Christ. Because there's one character in mind that decided to deal with his own weaknesses all by himself and he ended up hanging from a rope at the place of the skull. Come on, doing things alone, trying to conquer your fears alone will only lead to the death of God's vision for your life. But when we cry out, when we stay near Jesus, when we stay near our brothers, we end up having the King of Kings restore us and telling us to feed his sheep three times. Enabling us to go strengthen our brothers. It is imperative that husbands, come on, raise your hand if you're a husband. Husbands, you have to pastor your wives. Raise your hand if you're a wife. Wives, it is imperative that you submit to your husband's leadership. Because it will enable you to, to be the easier that he needs. Well, every wife in some shape or form has tried to help her husband without becoming one with his vision. Yeah. You try to replace his vision. You try to add to his vision. But you never first became one with his vision. Guilty. <laughs> you were going to say something, my love? No, go ahead. Okay. You got it. Very good. You got it. I'm staying aware. I'm staying dependent. So we are going to speak from the perspective of a married couple. But to our single brothers and sisters, this is how I want you to apply this word in your life. Number one, you better be writing if you're single. Allow the Lord and those he's placed in leadership to pastor you through your fear. Allow the Lord and those he's placed in leadership to pastor you through fear. We all need Pastoring. There's never a day that we are to go without it. Either from the Lord or from those that God has put in position to speak into our lives. Pastors need pastoring. 
That's why Pastor Eric is doing what he's doing in one association. He's going from church to church, strengthening the leaders so that they can thereby strengthen their sheep. Number two, when you are in right shalom, honoring the authority in your life, it allows you to be the easier to those God's placed around you. Come on, ladies. You single ladies in, in the home together? All the single ladies? All the single men? You know what it's like. Whenever things are in right order with God and right order with men, next thing you know, the heavens open up and you have that right word, you have that right prophetic insight into your sister's or your brother's life, and you're able to undo what has been bound up and confined with fear. Am I right? Make sure you write down these two principles. It's going to help you. It's going to save you. Everybody turn to Isaiah 51. Let's go to verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Is that this congregation this morning? Is that those who are watching this uh, video this morning? Yes. Yes, it is. They send a little happy face on Facebook. There we go. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Come on, walls of steel was a powerful message last Sunday. Nick and Judah brought it. Speaking of the unity that is a must. When we're rebuilding the wall in front of us, starting with our own home, we are also building unity with each other. That without that unity, the wall in front of our home is pointless. But our unity with each other is everything. Verse 2. Look to Abraham, your father. And to Sarah, who gave you birth, when I called him, he was but one, and I blessed him and made him many. Let's look at what we can learn from Abram and Sarai's Sarai's life. Let's go to Genesis 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. What a beautiful woman you are. Just plugging in the crockpot. There we go. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister. Mm. So that I will be treated well for your sake. I mean, this is all just ultimately for you, babe. And my life will be spared because of you. So in condensed version, Abram said, she's beautiful. I'm powerless. She's beautiful. I am powerless. Let's read on. Verse 14. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. So was he right? Yeah, good assessment. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And she was taken into his palace. Hmm. 
He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants, and camels. Wow, that was a very that was a blessed decision. Amazing. Look how God's favor was on that. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh. And his household became and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham, what have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. So here's the thing. Abram had the right assessment with the wrong conclusion. Come on, men. Have you ever had the right assessment with the wrong conclusion? Ladies, y'all ever had the right assessment with the wrong conclusion? Never, no, never, not at all. So right before this event, you know what Abraham received? He received a promise from the God. And now we see him trying to preserve that promise out of fear and self-sufficiency. Come on, just keep me alive because God spoke this word to me. So let's compromise our marriage. Let's compromise our covenant so that I am preserved because I'm the one that really God spoke this to. I don't need you to be part of this covenant to complete my call. Let me say it again. This is Abram saying, I don't need you to complete this call. That hurts. We know that Abram is the father of our faith. But he's also the father of our fears. Come on, Abram is, is highly exalted. I mean, that's what his name means, is exalted father. God changed it to the father of many, father of nations. But he's an exalted man. And the message today is not to defame the name of Abraham, but it's to see the Abraham inside of us. Identify with it because we're going somewhere with it. There's two ways we deal with fear. Number one, we internalize fear. Number two, we externalize fear. Fears within, fears without. So let me make this clear. This is not gender specific. So much like the marriage counseling that we have, uh, many of you guys have been through with Abigail and the ball, this is not gender specific. Both of these can exist in you at the same time. It just depends on the situation and with the person or, or people that you're dealing with. For me and my wife, it's pretty, it's pretty much a black and white issue. Or more so like a brown and white issue. <laughs> yeah, Keith, just do it. And here, here's how it's, it's a very polar issue. Is that I internalize. That is the majority of the way that I deal with fear. She externalizes it. And we want to show you exactly how that plays out. So let's pull up the chart about internalizing fear. Can you guys see this? Awesome. Look over here. There we go. So what we see is first false confidence. Internalizing causes you to use facts to justify fearful reactions. You begin to roll through your mind. How exactly can I, I deal with this? What facts? What evidence is there? In Genesis 12, 13, this is when 
Abram says to Sarai, say you are my sister. This is true. It is a fact. But it's more true that she is his wife. The second thing that happens is that there is double-mindedness. This is a, when I internalize fear, I demonstrate this by having a lack of deep convictions. I'm wishy-washy. I'm also fearing man more than God. Well, in Genesis 12, 13, again, Abram says, so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. He is lacking a deep conviction and therefore double-minded in how the promise will be fulfilled. Number three, silent surrender. When I internalize fear, I demonstrate it by just checking out from the problem. I don't realize I've made a peace treaty with my problem. And it is actually a surrendering of my responsibilities. Come on, you've done this with your wives. You've done this with your kids. Abram demonstrated this in in verse 15 of chapter 12. When he says, when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her. To Pharaoh, and she was taken to his palace, and he just watched her walk into another man's arms. He abdicated control and responsibility. Fourth, when do I internalize fear? I demonstrate or experience missed opportunities. This is quintessential to me. Waiting for the perfect moment. This leads to the issue confronting me at the imperfect time. Come on, problems are going to find you out. So Genesis 12, 19. Abram waited to deal with the issue. But Pharaoh confronts him and says, Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? You know this Hebrew word for, uh, for take or took that Pharaoh uses? is Strong's number 3947 means to take in marriage or consummate. He didn't just bring her into his dining room. He brought her into his bedroom. This is right after the promise that was being made to Abram earlier in 12. Lastly, number five, when I internalize fear, I demonstrate paralyzation through analyzation. So until there is overwhelming evidence to move, I will not move. You know what? I'm going to demonstrate faith because I really, really need to just know that this is God. But what I really, really don't know is that fear is paralyzing me from doing anything. I want to fully hear from God first. See this again in verse 19 of chapter 12. When Pharaoh says, now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. He, Abram did not do what he should have done in the first place until Pharaoh confronted him and commanded him to go with overwhelming evidence. It's a poor, it was implying that take her as a wife. Or let me back up. When Pharaoh says, take her and go, it's the same word used earlier to consummate or take in marriage. Come on, she's not my wife. She's your wife. As she should have been all along. It's a poor reflection on God's people when the world knows what's right order better than you. When the world can look at a a Christian marriage and see the overall problems due to fear that they don't even have. Because you're trying to protect the promise with your own arm. 
Let's continue on. Internalizing fear is not facing your fear and dealing with it. Make sure we got it. Internalizing fear is not facing your fear and dealing with it rightly. You can't abdicate control in a situation where God has given you authority and responsibility over it. Men, we can't abdicate the control over what God has rightly put in our hands. Ladies, you cannot abdicate control of your children and the, the rightful shalom responsibilities to your husband or anybody else. You have to take the right place. Well, let's look at Sarah in this situation. Sarai, she's a good demonstration of what our responsibility is as a wife. She's put in an, in, in an impossible situation. And how does she respond? I want y'all to know that what we are preaching today, what we're sharing with y'all, is born out of our own personal lives. We have wrestled with this marriage, I mean, this marriage, this message. We've wrestled with the marriage and we've gotten victory, and we've wrestled with this message, and we are getting victory in it. (laughs) We're working on it. This is not something that we've accomplished. This message cuts me to the heart when I read this, and I realize all the ways that I'm failing, and I don't live up to Sarah's name. When she, um, let's go to 1 Peter 3, 1 through 4, and this is going to help us walk through her reactions to Abram's leadership. Too bad. All right. Verse one, wives in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. A lot of times we think this is believing versus unbelieving. The wife's a believer and the husband is not. This is any time the husband is demonstrating a lack of trust in God's word. So apply that in that situation. Plug this scripture in in that situation. They may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So let's go. Let's Pastor Ray, can you put that chart back up of the internalizing fear? We are getting there. Okay, we're going to walk through back through this chart because I want to walk through what do you do when your husband is demonstrating these things? What's the correct response as a wife? Do you, would that help you guys? Because it's helping me. <laughs> I had to repent already this morning. Okay, so when your husband is... <laughs> when your husband, I love you, baby. I love you. When your husband is exhibiting false confidence, um, when he is using facts to justify a fearful reaction... So we're facing something fearful and he's saying, we're going to do this. And it's all based on facts and fear. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. I I don't think this is, this is right. It's not our responsibility to mouth off to him. I'm just going to be honest with you. The word says we're to win them over without words. And that is hard for someone like me because I like to talk. And it's not just about talking. It's not just about hearing my, my self speak. It's about communicating what's going on in my head so that you believe what I know and you, you're convinced. It's about that. It's about taking control. But the word instructs me to do it without words. So when he's exhibiting false confidence, the word says in First Peter, says be submissive to your husbands. That word submit means to become one with the vision. Okay? 
I don't agree with this. I see a million other ways that this is wrong, but I am going to lay all of that down and sacrifice that on the altar and submit to my husband because it's what the word commands me to do. And the Lord will take care of me through it. God's favor protects you when you submit and you work in right order. Now, this does not mean that you won't face the effects of his bad decision. Okay, we've all been in this situation, whether it be a husband or a boss or a leader of some kind, and they've made a decision that's not exactly right, and you have to pay the price for it. Have y'all been in that situation before? We've all been in that situation before. So what, what, where can we draw strength in that? The Lord gave me this scripture, and it has been such a jewel to me, and I want to share it with y'all. Let's turn to Psalm 73, verse 26. It says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The reality of the situation is my strength, the external circumstances may fail me. My heart, the internal may fail me, but God is the strength of my what? He doesn't even address the flesh. There is a reality that you might have to face circumstances that you don't like, that you feel are unfair. I shouldn't be in this situation. Yeah, but God has allowed it. And who is the strength of your heart? God, he will strengthen you to be able to endure anything. None of you are in the situation Sarah was where she was given to another man. And her husband watched her walk away. So let's not have a pity party and say, I'm being treated so unfairly. This is not right. I shouldn't be this. My kids are going to suffer. I'm going to suffer. Baloney, the Lord is bigger than that. Come on, ladies. She's preaching better than y'all responded. Get it. Okay, let's go to the next one. When your husband's being double-minded. When your husband is double-minded, your purity and reverence without words has the power to stabilize him. What I mean by that is when you adhere to God's standards. Have you ever had a plant? I've got this plant in my front yard. Y'all probably seen it when you come over. It's a hibiscus. I'm trying to keep this thing alive. And it just wants to keep leaning. It just wants to keep getting blown over by the wind. It's, it's double-minded, right? It's going back and forth. So what I did was I asked my husband, can you cut me a stick, please? So he cut me a stick. I stuck it in there, and I tied it to the branch so it would hold it up straight to the standard. Sorry. That's what we do. That's what we provide for our husbands when we, without words, adhere to God's standards. Being pure, being reverent in the way that we live stabilizes our husbands. It's something they can count on instead of jawing in his ear and degrading him and bringing him down, telling him all the ways he's failing me and all the outcomes and you can't make up your mind. What good is that going to do? None. It doesn't. (laughs) Trust me. (laughs) I've heard it said. I've heard it said. Amen. All right. So we're going to stabilize our husbands when he's, when they're double minded. Okay. When they check out, what do you do when your husband just refuses to participate? When something needs to be solved and he's just like, yeah, I got a meeting. See ya. And walks out the door and you're just standing there. <laughs> Okay, I don't know what to do. And there's a frustration that rises. This is this is maybe happened once or twice in our marriage. Per week. And uh 
And I look on the calendar and I see how many meetings does he have? When can I talk to him about this? Because I'm just frantic and I'm fretful and it accomplishes nothing. When he checks out your ability to captivate him with biblical beauty, that gentle and quiet spirit will rein him back in. Amen. Yeah. The gentle and quiet spirit, not the fretful freaking out spirit. <laughs> Say that again. I'm going to put that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah, have one of those red circles with a line through it. No nope. fretful freaking out. Okay. <laughs> the gentle and quiet spirit draws him back into the fight with you. Not fighting with you, the fighting alongside of you against the fear. When we miss opportunities because of a delayed reaction... We're going to put our hope in God like the women in the Bible used to. Okay, that's how they made themselves beautiful. You have to trust that God is going to make up for that missed opportunity. There have been situations in our lives where we have just delayed making a decision, and now we're reaping the consequences. And the Lord has been so faithful to let that opportunity come back around. He won't let you miss his plan. If you are seeking him and you are doing this right, your faith is in God, you're not going to miss that opportunity. Okay, the last one. When he's paralyzed. This This is a hard one. We don't like this. Can we pull up the scripture again in first Peter three, one through four? Oh, it's probably after that. It's probably five. First five. We're going to pair when he's paralyzed. We want to restore his confidence. First Peter says it's probably six, six. Yeah. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. In some translations, it's master. I want to talk to y'all about what this word is. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna undo the seriousness of this. I'm not gonna tell you it means something other than what it means. In the Greek, it means the one supreme in authority. In the Hebrew, it means the sovereign, the controller. She gave over all control of her life to him and restored his confidence. So that he could make a good decision. So that he would not be paralyzed in fear. Let's stop working against our husbands when we see a weakness. You know that that thing that, aha, I got you. Why? You're tearing down your own house. Instead, let's be that stabilizing effect that brings them back into right shalom. This is how we ease our husbands. Amen. It's without words. All of these things are or actions, except for calling him master and Lord. And that's a demonstration of an attitude. It's more than that. I mean, there are times when Matt calls me in the house and I say, yes, sir. And I do it. It's, it's just a sweet way for me to show him honor. I fix his plate. I do these things because I love him, but that's not the, the, the demonstration of him being my master and Lord. It's when he looks at me and he says, Hey, I want to do this. And I'm like, I had different plans. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Whatever you say, I want to do this. You are in control of me. You are in control of this house. You make good decisions, baby. I'm with you. The Lord is with yes. us and I am with you. Woo. We just end it right now. So, so this was a win for Sarah, right? This is amen. She's great. Okay. Let's look when it's not a win. Because we, we've got to look at these situations. It's not like, oh, bad Abram and good Sarah. This is, uh, this is challenging. Okay, so let's, Keep going, baby. let's turn to Genesis 16. Uh, 16, 1 through 6. 
Mm-hmm. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. So we see here that Sarai's got a lot of blame throwing, like a flamethrower. She's blame throwing. <laughs> she, <laughs> she, she blames God for her not being able to have children, as if the story's over. I'm not having children right now, therefore... This is God's fault. He blame, she blames Abram for Hagar despising her. And she tries to use her own arm to force God's promises. Perhaps I can build a house through this, through this girl. Where Matt tends to internalize fear, I'm known for externalizing fear and trying to take control of the situation. Anybody else out there like that? It's not just women. Not just women do this. Men do this too. Nobody's raising their hands, but I know you. <laughs> I see it. <laughs> okay, so let's look at the, the slide on externalization of fear. Okay, so these are you the You just ways. internalize your fear by not raising your hand. So anyway. Everyone's going to know. So this is how externalizing fear can manifest. And this is how it manifests in my life. When I am fearful, I am impetuous. I look at the situation. I say, well, something needs to be done, and I must be the one to do it. And then I'm overly confident that the details are just going to work out. So I see a situation. I just begin to act. I don't think it all the way through. And then I'm like, well, the Lord's just going to meet me in it, and he's going to give me the rest of what I need. And then you're like Sarai in uh, 16 verse 2 where she says, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. But she didn't consider what it was going to feel like when that maidservant got pregnant or the night that she gave her to him. How is she going to feel that night when she's in her tent alone? Or how she was going to feel when um, Hagar gives birth? Or when Abram starts to show affection to this child? She she didn't think through any of this. It's just, hey, you need it. Something needs to be done, and this is a good solution. Do it. And she forces this on him. Another way externalizing fear is exposed is in perfectionism. Everything has to be perfect for me to be at peace. This manifests in a critical spirit. And the critical spirit aims at managing the plan. So my kids are very familiar with this aspect of my personality because when we have an event or anything's about to happen, I'm like, okay, everybody's got their chore list. And we've got a big house the Lord has blessed us with to be able to host events. So there's a lot to clean. And everybody's running in a million directions. And they're working hard. And they've vacuumed and they've swept and they've wiped down this. And I walk in and I see one counter that's not done. Who was supposed to do this? This is, there's, there's toast crumbs on the counter. This is not perfect. Who was supposed to get everybody down here right now? And it's this managing. I feel chaotic and out of control. And if I get everything else in control, then I can be at peace. Was this hitting home? 
The nature of my peace is resting on external circumstances. That's not what the word teaches. Uh, Sarai demonstrated this when she said in verse two, perhaps I can build a family through her. I'm going to manage the situation and put everything in order so that the outcome will be good and I can rest. This is a big one. Y'all ready? Manipulation. I know I'm probably the only one that's really, really good at this. (laughs) I'm so good at this. (laughs) Manipulation is using your giftings to alter the outcome. So I can see a situation from a thousand different angles. And I'm very, very crafty at only bringing up the information to direct someone to the desired outcome. So here is the whole story, but he only really needs to know about this piece and this piece because he, that'll force him to draw the conclusion that I want him to draw. Woo! Ow! <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know where I learned that. Uh, <laughs> I'm really good at that. Yeah, don't explore that. We're going to just move on. So 16.5 says. In 16.5, then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. She's not only playing on the information, but she's playing on his emotions. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. She hates me, and it's your fault. She's leaving out huge chunks of the story here. She's the one that brought Hagar to him. She's the one who came up with the plan. She leaves all of that out. And she's manipulating him through emotionalism and leaving out information. Another way this manifests in me is being uncorrectable. When I focus on the technicalities instead of the truth, what's really true about the situation Or I focus on what's right. This is what's right. But I'm not focused on what's righteous. When she says, may the Lord judge between you and me. What she's saying is one of us is wrong. And it's not me. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) We heard a, a powerful series on correction. And it still is ringing in my ears. Most of my stones have to do with this. This is a huge one for us. When we refuse to accept blame for any part of the situation we're in. The last way, and this is not an exhaustive list, but we only could come up with five. So the last way that I demonstrate externalization of fear is through aggressiveness. This is force that is justified from selfish motives. This requires you to undervalue the other person. When I am aggressive with a person, I have to devalue them in my eyes in order to get my point across. No, you have to listen to what I'm saying. You have to see what I'm saying. You have to agree with me. You have to do what I want you to do. And and it's abrasive and ugly. It's the gentle and quiet spirit that's beautiful. Not this. This is ugly. Yeah. It's ugly. It's ugly. In verse 6. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar. Well, I got permission from my husband to treat her however I want. You feel justified in your aggressiveness towards someone, but it's really birthed out of fear. I don't have control of this situation, and I'm going to force it upon this other person. So externalizing fear is not is not facing your fear and dealing with it rightly. 
You can't take control of a situation where God has not given you authority. Let me say that again. You cannot take control of a situation where God has not given you authority. So guys, do y'all want to know how to pastor your wives through fear? Let's go back to 1 Peter 3, and we're going to pick up in verse 7. Like we were saying earlier, we're looking at Abram and Sarai because they're the rock from which we're cut, the quarry from which we're hewn. That the whole point is to see Abram and Sarai inside of ourselves. So 1 Peter 3, 7 directs husbands in this way. In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Are wives necessary to complete our call in every single way? Well, let me tell you, how do you deal with your wife or someone that you're responsible for that is being impetuous? Well, you be considerate as you live or habitate with them. Husbands are to consider that their wives see something, but they do not leave it up to her to do something about it. You lead the way you do something about it. How much would have have changed the outcome for Abram and Sarai if he didn't just leave it up to her to do something about it? But consider that she did see something. Perfectionism. This is corrected by what we see in 1 Peter 3. Respect her as the weaker partner. Wives already recognize that they lack real power to control the outcome. They feel out of control and need to get it under control with their own strength. However, it is your responsibility as a husband to anticipate their weaknesses and provide them with strength and direction. Come on, husbands. It's your responsibility to provide your wives with strength and direction. You have to get ahead of where your wife is going to be. That's what leading is about. It then becomes her responsibility to relinquish control and his responsibility or your responsibility to follow through. Manipulation. Again, respect her as the weaker partner. Husbands have to be immovable leaders that discern their wife's heart. Calling out missing details in their story and correcting the false strength of manipulation. If you're not looking and sifting what your wife is telling you and believing wholehearted everything she says is truth, you're not doing your job as a husband and you're not pastoring her through it. What would you think of us as pastors if we just sat in front of everybody that talked to us and believed 100% of everything that they said? Number one, that doesn't happen because we're pastors. That we have a responsibility before God and we'll be judged by God in the way that we pastor you, but more importantly, how we pastor our home. So husbands, you have to sift through what they're telling you because the whole point is that you listen carefully so that you can direct her accurately. More importantly, redirect her. Uncorrectable. Remember that she is an heir with you. You cannot abandon her to her own stubbornness. Work with her to bring her to where you are. Husbands are to lead their wives into unity with them and the Lord and remove the divisive element of technicalities and self-righteousness. 
Come on, pastoring your wife through her fears is a formidable task. It's difficult. It can get wearisome. It can seem like no matter matter the amount of effort you're exerting, no change is being made. But I promise you, it absolutely is. You're fortifying a foundation for your home to be built on. And when you have done the work of pastoring, when it counts, when warfare comes, when it's time to build and go up and add large stones on that foundation, it will be able to hold the weight. Aggressiveness. You counter it with nothing shall hinder your prayers. Husbands must respond to their wife's aggression with spirit-led leadership and not fleshly retaliations. In this way, wives will realize that they are not only fighting their husband, but they're also fighting against God. If you retaliate with fleshly actions... You're just getting down on the flesh level and you're removing God from the authority in the chaos. This situation with Hagar wasn't exactly a win for Abram. But how did he conquer fear both in himself and in his wife? Let's look at Romans chapter 4 starting verse 18. Amen. Come on. We're going to do this thing. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. That's you. That's me. Just as it it has been said, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith. Come on. He faced the fact. Say face the fact. Sometimes we just have to come face to face with what the facts really are. We can't hide or pretend that fear or fearful conditions exist. We cannot rush just to take control of all of it without consulting God. We first have to just face the fact it is what it is. And that was that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief. Here's the important part regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. So after we face the fact and acknowledge what is true, we do not waver. We do not go back or we do not go in reverse of what God said. Instead, we remind ourselves what God has said. We remind our wives what God has said. Go back to your mezuzah, man. When you feel discouraged, when you had your, your, your head just rocked by a circumstance, you've given in to one of those external or internal elements of fear. You feel like you failed and that you cannot recover. Go back to your purpose. Come on, God spoke to Abraham in chapter 12, made a promise. Abraham fell on his face. God came back in chapter 17 and verse in chapter 18, and he confirmed his covenant with his son. By dwelling in God's presence, by pursuing and overcoming your fear and saying, I don't know how I'm going to overcome this, but I know that God can overcome it inside of me. I need to know and that confirmation of my purpose. 
We begin households by receiving a mezuzah, receiving a purpose from God that directs the work that we are to do. And it will sustain and complete the work that you're supposed to do. Abram was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. We are to invest in our relationship with the Lord. And in turn, he will confirm his promises and his covenant. Being fully persuaded means that we determine God is bigger than our problems. He's bigger than our fears. Come on, don't tell God how big your problems are. Tell your problems how big God is. Abraham was pastored by the Lord. And then he was able to go and pastor his wife. We see the evidence of this in Hebrews 11. Let's pull this up, but in the, in the NASB, the New American Standard. Verse 11, Hebrews eleven eleven. In the NASB, it says, By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time in life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, if you have the NIV, you have a footnote that indicates that this is a possible translation also. When you look at this, you see evidence that Abram pastored his wife. He received from God. He did not waver in his faith. He was strengthened. He was fully persuaded. And he gave that which he had received from the Lord to his wife so that she could consider him faithful who had promised. Do you remember the story when the angel appears to Abram and he's talking about in a year from now, your your wife will have a son. And he says, where's your wife? And she was in the tent. Abram doesn't rush to go get her. He's trying to take that time to receive and get confirmed and get shored up so that he's confident in the promises of God so he can turn and pastor his wife. But she overhears it. And what's her response? She laughs because she wasn't strengthened yet. She had not received the pastoring from her husband that she needed to accept the promises of God. We need our husbands to pastor us. We need that. We cannot deal with our fears on our own. It's not possible. We will fail every time. And if you have not received your husband yet, you can receive this pastoring from the body of Christ that the Lord has placed you in and from the Lord himself. You can get what you need even now. Don't be discouraged in this. The Lord is faithful and he will continue to give you what you need to strengthen you husbands we need our wives we need that easership that they possess because it's not good for man to be alone we need that ability to come home and number one feel like we're the lord or the king of our castle so many men would prefer to go to work because that's where they're king they are not able to be that in their own home We need our wives to be able to look us in the eye and remind us of the promises that God has made. Remind us of the mezuzah which God has given us to recenter and stabilize us on the foundation of what God has already said. The ways in which we carry out pastoring and easership is first and primarily founded upon God's word. So I want to share with you guys my, my, my personal scriptures, the stones that God has given me to combat the issues of internalizing fear. So I'm going to read these through. You can write them down if they identify with you. If not, why don't you go find one for yourself? False confidence. It's my mezuzah scripture. Romans 12, one through two. 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's good will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, I, we chose to start by clearly illustrating the name of our patriarchs. Abram and Sarai. That's where they begin, but that's not where they ended. There was a transformational process that occurred where God changed their name. There's a transformational process that you must undergo by engaging God's word and letting it make you something, uh, make you into something that is completely different. It will take you from just being an exalted father to being a father of many nations. It'll take you women from being a drill sergeant into being a princess and a queen with God. Double-mindedness. James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to him. Silent surrender. Actually, if you could put up that list of internalization while I go through these. Silent surrender. Genesis 18.19. For I've chosen him, Abraham, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he promised him. Do a word study on this uh, whenever you get free time this week. The word for direct is saba. It's a Hebrew word for command as in a military term. You are to use military force and structure and expectancy to lead your home. If you're not doing that, you're not leading a home the way that God intended you to. Missed opportunities. Ephesians 5, verse 15 and 16. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Yeah. And lastly, paralyzation. 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace God, the grace to be given you when Christ Jesus is revealed. You have to be proactive. You cannot be reactive. We started off this message uh, picking up in Nehemiah, and we talked about the wall being halfway built. I want to talk to you about a way that you build your wall um, that's not the wall that God's wanting you to complete. Let's turn to Isaiah 30. We're going to pick up, we're going to start in verse 13, but this is kind of right in the middle of something. And what the Lord has been addressing in them is their dependency on other people, their dependency on their own arm, their dependency on their own control of the situation. And the Lord addresses them and says, this sin will become for you like a high wall. Oh, well, yeah, I completed the wall. Cracked and bulging that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. About five years ago, the Lord started speaking to me out of Isaiah 30, and it changed my life. It was the turning point in me conquering fear. Um, it's all over my house, this scripture. It's on my Bible. It's on my Bible cover. This is the scripture that I cling to the most, what follows right after this. But this just wrecked me. 
it just convicted my heart so much because there was so much self-sufficiency in me. There was so much control and domination in my life. And the Lord said, this sin is like a high wall and at any moment it's going to collapse. At any moment. And it scared me to death. This thing that I thought I had built, it wasn't anything I could count on. And the Lord was about to just shatter it mercilessly in an instant. And so I was crying out to the Lord, what do I need to do? How do I need to fix this? And then verse 15, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. I had been trying to save myself. And the Lord said, repent from your own ways. That word rest means to lay down your arms. Stop doing things. Stop trying to run your life. Stop trying to take control of your husband. Stop trying to manage your children like a, like a micromanager and being critical of everybody and everything. And everything has to be perfect. Stop. The Lord was just screaming to me in repentance and rest. That's where you're going to find your salvation. The next one in quietness and trust is your strength. Lord, I feel so powerless. I can't do anything about these situations. Yeah, but in me, you find the strength. In the quietness, when I quiet my mind and my emotions and my plans and my logic and the willful stubbornness that's in my heart, when I quiet all of that down and I simply just trust him, that's when I have my strength. The, The tighter the grip I try to take of my life, the weaker I become. If we work against ourselves, it's folly. And then there's a warning at the end of this verse. He says, but you would have none of it. I mean, that's challenging. The Lord is speaking something to you and it is for you, but you will have none of it. No, I got this, Lord. Then it's going to become a high wall. You're going to complete that wall, but it's going to be cracked and bulging and collapse in an instant. You will have nothing to show for it. So I want to share with you, this is, this is my scripture. This is my heart. But there are some specific scriptures that I found to address the ways that I externalize fear. And I want to give those to y'all because I feel like it'll help. Um, when I am impetuous, when I am just jumping into action because something needs to be done, Psalm 130 verse 5 calms me right down. It says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. Soul, my mind, will, and emotions. I will wait for the Lord, my mind, my will, and my emotions will wait for the Lord. And instead of putting my hope in my own arm, I'm going to put it in his word. Perfectionism, Isaiah 26, verse 3. You will keep in perfect peace. Him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. If my mind is steadfast on the Lord, that's that perfect peace I'm after. Not by controlling my external circumstances. Manipulation. Go back to Isaiah 30, 15, because man, it just undoes all of those knots. This is what the sovereign Lord says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. Stop trying to control the situation. Stop trying to manipulate. Quietness and trust is your strength. When I'm uncorrectable, this is a staple scripture in our house, right? Girls, Proverbs 12, 1, whoever loves discipline, loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. 
That's one thing I don't want to be. I don't want to be stupid. I'm fighting so hard so that everybody doesn't think I'm stupid. Except I am stupid according to the word because I won't receive the correction that I need. I'm not stupid. I know how to do this. You don't have to tell me anything. Yeah, you look like a fool right now. Stupid. (laughs) And the (laughs) the aggressiveness. 1 Peter 3, 4. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. If I am demonstrating this, not only am I of great worth in God's sight, I'm of great worth in his sight. And that's my motivation in life. I want to please him and I want to please my king. Those two things. If I can do that, then that's all I need. Amen to that. Woo! Last scripture. Let's go to Nehemiah 4. And we'll pick up in verse 15. Proper pastoring reverses the effects of fear and enables you to rightly take your place in completing the wall. We need proper pastoring. In Nehemiah 4.15, he says, When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot, And that God had frustrated it. We all returned to the wall. Each to his own work. Come on, Nehemiah addressed the next major obstacle to completing the wall. And that was fear. When we expose the devil's lies. When we expose the lies of our own sinful nature. Then completing the rest of the wall really is not that hard. And everything that has been opposing us begins to flee in the opposite direction. I got a last list to put up for you guys. And go ahead and stand to your feet. I want to call you to an action. And contemplate this. We'll have all of these online as a PDF that you can look through. What facts are you running from? And pretending they don't exist. You need to face the fact. The knowledge of what is true. Where are you wavering regarding the promises that God has given you? Go back to what God has said. Where do you need strengthening in your faith? Invest in your relationship with the Lord and he will confirm his promises. What area do you need to acknowledge that God is bigger than your your circumstances? Well, determine that God is bigger. And tell your problems about how big God is. Ultimately, down here as we open up the altar and are about to pray, I want you to ask the Lord to reveal to you. And those of you who are married, ask your spouse to help you. Identify what fears are coming in and robbing you of the faith that God is trying to give you. If you're single, ask those that God has put around you as your brothers and sisters to help you. But we want to begin at the altar. We want to begin to let God's presence sift through our thoughts and hearts because we want to be strengthened through our fears. We all come in this building twice a week, if not more, because we need strengthening from the presence of God. We need strengthening from interaction with the body. 
So let's begin to put our hearts before him and ask him to reveal where we need strengthening in the face of our fears.